0: Well, we have been in a series. We started at Christmas time called Generous, Generous Christmas, and then we, uh, in the New Year, c- continued it. And we're just going to call it Generous Justice because the issue is about justice. The key verse was Micah 6 8, where God says, I've shown you, man, oh man, what is right and what you should do to do justice. And to um, love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And so we've been talking about doing justice and being generous to those around us. And I mentioned at the beginning of this series that it was mostly going to be for me that I have felt convicted that I need to be more generous, that I need to, to be involved in more justice ministries and to do more for the, the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the orphan and the widow and the stranger, alien, foreigner, and the poor. And that I wanted our church to do those things as well, and I'm hoping that we can. And I feel like it's been a wonderful series. It really has. One of my favorites. Not, not that I thought that it would be going in, but it's become one of my favorites. And I've heard, heard the same from some of you. And I'm just going to be honest with you, tonight or this morning is going to be a difficult message because um, it's, I, I've, I've wrestled with this subject a lot, this week especially. A thought occurred to me this week, um, and then as I was thinking upon that thought, uh, it was followed by three other thoughts that I want to share with you, and that is, um, this is the thought that came to me. The thought says, we cannot talk about justice for six weeks and then ignore the issue of racism and ethnic injustices. I heard it said this week from a scholar that most white Westerners think that when they hear the word racism, they immediately think, well, well, that was at a certain time period, at a certain place, you know, maybe in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement. And it's, you know, this is 2016, and we're way beyond that now. I mean, we... Homosexual marriages, you know, the legalization of pot. I mean, we're definitely a looser country than we were then. So, this, racism isn't really a problem. And then he said, that would be so naive to think that racism and, and ethnic injustices are not a huge problem. Globally, they are a huge problem. They always have, racism has always been a problem in the world, always, from the beginning of time. And it probably always will be that way because of sin and because of pride. And so, Obviously on a global stage, racism is a big issue. We can we can think of the Armenian genocide from nineteen fifteen that slaughtered over one hundred, I mean over one point five million people. The Holocaust that we are all familiar with, I'm, I believe, in the nineteen forties, slaughtered and, and destroyed over ten million people, Jews especially. The Rwandan genocide from the Hutus and the Tutsis, which happened in nineteen ninety five and still happening today. Big deal. I had a friend who was from Burundi and he had a ministry towards the Hutus and the Tutsis trying to create reconciliation. Imagine that. (laughs) The Bosnian conflict in 1995 was a genocide. Darfur just recently in 2003 and I could go on and on. You could just look it up, type in the word genocide in Wikipedia and you'll see racial, ethnic injustices all over the world. So, So racism is still a global issue, wouldn't you agree? And it's not just a global issue, but it's a national issue as well. I mean, it's all over the place in America. I mean, and you see it, if you, if you watch the news this week, you saw it in headlines all over the place, did you not? From the whiteness of the Oscars, did you see that? Um, you know, there's no color, no race in the Oscars, no, no actors, no actresses, no producers, to, to just the GOP debates and the State of the Union Address and the responses and the talk of immigration and deportation and, and racism, it's, it's all over the place. Can't get away from it. So it's not just a global issue, it's not just a national issue, but let's just be honest, it's a city issue. I mean, we live in St. Louis, which led me to my second thought, which was this. Um, we cannot talk about justice for six weeks and then ignore the issue of racism and ethnic injustices and live in St. Louis, <laughs> right? It would be like, are you skipping something, Mike? Mike? It almost looked like you were purposely avoiding it. You're talking about justice, and you don't talk about racism? Oh, and you live in St. Louis, and you don't talk about racism? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Ferguson seems to come up all the time. You see it on the news, every week you see it. It's still, they're still talking about it. And, and, and it's not just coming up on local news, it's coming up national news, it's coming up in global news. They're still talking, we, we, St. Louis is on the map because of what happened this past year in regards to race. So it's an issue. I know, that was, I know that you may feel certain ways about it, and have. but the truth of the matter is, if we step back, there is racial, ethnic issues that the church probably should respond to in a p- specific way. So, uh, the third point, and this is where it gets interesting. Thirdly, I thought, we cannot do a six week series on justice and then skip racism. And we cannot do a six-week series on justice and skip racism if we live in St. Louis. And we cannot do a six-week series on justice and skip racism if we live in St. Louis. And that series happens to fall on Martin Luther King weekend. I heard this voice in my head that said, are you kidding? You didn't talk about racism? No, you know, our people don't really need to deal with that. We got other issues. Poverty, maybe. Okay. But you live in St. Louis? You're, it seems like you're trying to avoid it. Oh, and it was Martin Luther King, King weekend. You purposely avoided it. You moved, you like, and then by not saying something about it would be saying something about it, wouldn't it? And so the Lord convicted me and said, we're not going to ignore it. We're going to talk about it. We need to talk about it. I need to study it. And I want you to know I've studied a lot this week. And I, I've studied more for this message than I think any message in a long time. Um, too much. I'm still, still putting the finishing touches on it at, at 630 this morning. Because it's a big issue. We have to talk about racism. And racism is not a nice word. No one wants to call themselves a racist. No one thinks they're a racist. So maybe we should use ethnic injustices. God is in the business of reconciliation. Someone say amen. God reconciled us, wicked sinners who are far from him, hostile towards God. He reconciled us and brought us into fellowship with him. And God has commanded us to be in the business of reconciliation. He wants us to proclaim the good news to all the nations, to all the tongues and the tribes, everywhere from from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. (laughs) And he wants us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. So we ha- th- would you agree the church has a job to reconcile broken relationships, especially in regards to ethnic? So we need to think about it. I think we need to think about it. I mean, at least, The least thing that we can do is talk about it. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> because I'll be honest with you, I don't have answers. I don't have, like, here's what we need to do, and here's what's going to solve our problem. If we did, I would be on the TV. <laughs> but I do think that we owe it to ourselves to at least discuss it. So I, w- I want to do that today, as difficult as it might be. Yeah, so it's Martin Luther King weekend. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King and a little bit about social injustices and a little bit about, and a lot about Jesus. <laughs> but let, let, me, let me read you this quote from John Piper. He says, we don't know if the world would have changed without Martin Luther King, but we do know he was a rod in the hand of God. Leave aside his theology and his moral flaws. Everyone has, everyone has that. He was used in the mighty hand of providence to change the world so that the most appalling, blatant, degrading public expressions of racism have gone away. That's true. Martin Luther King did a good thing, a great thing. And he sacrificed his life for that cause. And the world, I believe, would be a different place had he died before he had a chance to do that. It's a good thing that Martin Luther King, with his system of nonviolence, brought the end of racism or the end of segregation at least in our country rather than someone else doing it like maybe you know Malcolm X or something like that it could have been a much more violent game so I want you to know that this week I've I've watched several movies about Martin Luther King I've read several books you know little biographies um, and I have shed a lot of tears I'm not saying I was bawling but I was choking up and getting misty-eyed and in public, you know, in Starbucks, writing my sermon, like, (laughs) and I'll be honest with you, I stepped back and said, why is this, why is this affecting me so much? Because I was born in 1974, which means I'm 41. If those of you are trying to do math, let me just save you the trouble, 41. Uh, This issue was before my time, and I grew up in a place called Houston, Texas, and it wasn't a big deal. In 1985, racism wasn't a big deal. I had lots of friends who were black, lots of friends who were Mexican, because I lived in Texas. I speak a little Spanish. I love tacos, right? I, I, it was a lot of ethnicity where, where I grew up. And so I, I don't particularly have any negative experiences with racism. Even my friends who were African or Asian, or, 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 or I had a lot of Ethiopian friends who came here from Ethiopia. I had several Ethiopian friends. Even, even from that experience, I don't have... Personal stories that they've told that break me. I just have, you know, relationships, and I've gone about my life, and everything's been pretty much okay. So I don't know why it affects me so much, but it has really affected me. It really affected me. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to preach this sermon last year on Martin Luther King Weekend, but I didn't have the guts to do it. I didn't have not not didn't have the guts. I didn't have. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I'd done some more studying, and I was like, This is bigger. This is a bigger issue than I, a white boy, is ready to do right now. You know. But I need to explore it more. So this, this, this year, I started exploring it more, and, and it's really affected me. And, and, and I think I've come to the conclusion that the reason why it's affecting me is that God is saying, Mike, you're a pastor who is passionate about the mission of God, to, the mission of God to declare the goodness of God to all the nations, to all the tongues, tribes, the ethnicities in the world, to people who are far from God to draw them in. And you're a pastor in St. Louis. You need to have a passion for this issue. So um, it's beginning to develop in me. I'm a long ways away from doing something with it, but it's, it's, it's real. Uh, I read and listened to many Martin Luther King sermons this week, which I've done in the past and just reacquainted myself with some of them this week, and I want to encourage you to do that today or tomorrow. Um, if you've got the day off, go on YouTube, type in Martin Luther King sermon. There's hundreds of them on that list. Just listen to them. It'll be 25 minutes worth your life. I mean, most of the sermons are about 25 minutes long. Some of you are thinking, I hope yours is 25 minutes long. I don't know that it will be. (laughs) I'll share with you a few lines from some of those sermons today, but I, I still encourage you to go listen to them. They're really good. He was definitely one of the most bestest communicators that ever stepped behind a microphone. Just, I mean... When I was in seminary, we analyzed his sermons and said, look what he's doing here. Look what he's done. Look how awesome he is. Phenomenal a of a phenomenal communicator. One of my favorite sermons I listened to this week has to be his last sermon. His last sermon um, was entitled The Good Samaritan or If I Had Sneezed. <laughs> it's a good sermon. It was his last sermon in which he knew he knew he was going to die and he died that night. Again, about twenty-five minutes long, and in that sermon, he tells a story about how he was in New York City it was ten years ago, prior to this sermon. New York City, writing a um, autographing his first book, and a, and a black woman came up to him and said, "Martin Luther King," and he said, "Yes," and she stabbed him with a knife in the chest and ran away, and they rushed him to the Harlem Hospital, and they X the, the blade's still in his chest cavity. They X-rayed him. And they saw that the very tip of the blade was touching his aorta um, artery. And the doctor said at that point, if you had sneezed, you would have punctured your aorta and you would have drowned in your own blood within minutes. That got put in the papers. If he had sneezed, there would have been no more Martin Luther King. And so he preached this sermon about if I had sneezed.
1: And I want to share it with you now. they allowed me to read some of the mail that came in and from all over the states and the world kind letters came in. I read a few but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York but I've forgotten what that letter said yes. but there was another letter that came from a little girl a young girl who was a student at the white plains high school and i looked at that letter and i'll never forget it it said to dear dr king i am a ninth grade student at the white plains high school she said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died, and I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight... say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960. That our attitude
0: should be the same as that little ninth grade girl, don't you? I'm so glad you didn't sneeze. The world's a better place because of Martin Luther King and we still have um, a lot to learn. And so I want to look at scripture, uh, Galatians. I want to show you a picture of racism in the Bible. Um, Galatians chapter 2 says this, but when Cephas, which is Peter, Peter's name, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men from James before, before certain men from James came, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypoc- hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw it, when I saw that their, listen to this, this is the verse I want us to see. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And he goes on to say, I rebuked them and I preached the gospel to them. So just to give you a little historical context, Paul and Peter had gone to Antioch for a conference. This conference was to deal with what the difference between Christianity is for a Jew and for a Gentile. Because if you're a Jew and you became a Christian, do you still need to follow all the Jewish laws, all the dietary restrictions? Now that I'm no longer a Jew but a Christian, can I eat bacon, for instance, would be a silly illustration. And, and Paul was of the mindset, when you become a Christian, we put away all those laws. We don't have to get circumcised. We don't have to have those dietary restrictions. We don't have to do those fasts. We're not, it, the, the Old Testament law is completed in Christ. But then there were other people, people from James, Paul says, who were of the circumcision party. And they believed that if you were a Gentile who had become a Christian, you needed to be circumcised and you needed to essentially become a Jew slash Christian. And Paul was saying, no, 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 not, not at all. And he had trained Peter and he had trained Barnabas and they were, they were gospel people who were now fellowshipping with Gentiles. You remember Peter's issue with the Gentiles and the, the dream he had with the net and the food coming up and down and he ate the food and he, he, God was telling him, I'm, I'm welcoming the Gentiles into this faith. So you need to understand that Jews were of a race, an ethnic background, and Gentiles were a different race, a different ethnic background. And Peter and Paul and Barnabas and, and Paul's disciples were fellowshipping, not just worshiping with, but eating with, you know, having meals with, hanging out with, becoming friends with Gentiles. But then at this conference, James's people came in the room. You've been in this position before, right? It's like the, the, the stuck up Christians come in the room. And then you start to feel like, oh. And so Peter and Barnabas pulled away from the Gentiles. Of course, probably offending the Gentiles. What? Well, we were friends. We were friends just five minutes ago. Oh, they came into the room and now we're not. Oh, I see how it is. You, you don't want to be seen with me. I guess I'm really not created equal in your eyes. And Paul said, that, act, act, that conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So do you see what this implies? It implies that the gospel has more to do has, than just what you believe. It also has to do with what you do. So, John Piper says this, it implies that there's conduct, there's behavior, there's actions, there's things that you do that are out of step with the truth of the gospel, or to put it in another way, the gospel governs not just our beliefs, but our actions. There is gospel belief, you know, believing that Jesus died for our sins, that we are free, and there's gospel action, what we do with that freedom, how we live in that freedom. Some beliefs contradict the gospel and some actions contradict, some actions contradict the gospel. So, so we did a series on Galatians about a year ago titled Freedom. The Gospel is Freedom. We're free in Christ. We're, we're, we don't, we're not held down by all these rules. Jesus died for our sins, and we're free. And particularly, we're free to love and to accept other races and other ethnicities. And when Peter stopped doing that, Paul said, what you're doing is not in step of the gospel. If you understand the gospel, you couldn't, you wouldn't do what you're doing. Um, Timothy Keller says it like this. If you are a Christian and you refrain from committing adultery or using profanity or missing church, but you don't do the hard work of thinking through how to do justice in every area of life, then you're essentially failing to live justly and righteously. Does that make sense? I love that quote. Because here's what happens in American evangelicalism. We say, in order to be a Christian, there are certain things that you need to not do, and there are certain things that you need to do. And if you follow those things, then you can be with us, right? Amen, brother and sister? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Am I right? The church seems to have this little... I almost wanted to say an unsp- Oh, it's not even an unspoken thing, it's, it's, it's stated, right? When you become a Christian, here's the things you need to do. You need to read your Bible, you need to go to church, and you need to give to the church, right? And here's things you don't need to do. You don't need to watch rated R movies, you need to stop drinking, and don't cuss, don't look at pornography, right? If you do any of these things, you're not on our team. And if you don't do any of these things, you're not on our team. Isn't that kind of what Christianity does? And the ironic thing is that none of these things are in Scripture explicitly about what it takes to come in. (laughs) But there are things in Scripture that says you should do, and none of those things are on our list. Does that make sense? (laughs) Love the poor, do justice, right? So Paul's saying you're not keeping in step with the gospel. You may believe certain things... You may go to church and not cuss, but that's not the point either. There are certain ways you need to act towards people in order to be walking in the gospel. If I'll say it like this. If you understand the gospel, you can't be a racist. So maybe I should, maybe I should um, explain the gospel. Uh, Piper says this. One of the central cadences of the gospel life is the breaking down of ethnic hostilities and suspicions. One of the central cadences, you know what that is, right? The rhythm, the, the rhythms, the, the drum beat. Christians march to the beat of a different cadence, a different drum, right? And one of the central drum beats of the Christian is to destroy or to dismantle um, or to break down ethnic hostilities and suspicions. We have suspicions about ethnic, ethnic people, don't we? Let's just bring it real. If a homosexual moved next door to you, or an Islamic family, right, from Iran, just moved in, they're wearing the turban, you see them going to and from their car with the turban, would you have suspicions? You would, right? Stereotypes? Would you have fear? Would you love them? As a pastor, I preach a sermon, you need to love your neighbor. Yeah, but my neighbor is a, Right? Oh, oh, but, the, but Jesus doesn't say you need to love your neighbor, comma, except in the cases of, you know, really extreme ones like these. <laughs> I could say same thing, if an African-American moved in, there'd be suspicions, right? And you've got to wonder, how far am I going to go to love this person? How far am I going to let my kids become friends with their kids? Because I don't want certain things to rub off on them, certain lifestyle choices, certain music. You know, I don't want my kids listening to gangster rap, you know. And none of that may be true, they're just stereotypes, they're just suspicions. And Piper says here, one of the central cadences of the Christian life is to break those down. To say, no, 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 we're not going to fall for that. We're going to do what God tells us to do and love them. But what if they prove it? Still, we're going to love them. And, because this, one of the central cadences is to break those down. One of the central impulses, one of the things that pushes us in life, is to bring unity and harmony. Answer my question, is that true of Christians? Are we supposed to bring unity and harmony? Yes, we are, right? She said they will know we are Christians by our love. Not by your picket sign. Not by your political position. Not by your banner or your flag, right? So we, we love people, and in loving them, we have to bring harmony and unity. Christians are harmonious people, or should be, right? We should be like, hey, we're just trying to bring in harmony and love. I may disagree with you. I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I love you. And do you feel like that's obvious in the church today? So maybe I should unpack the gospel. Because I said if the gospel gets a hold of you, then you could, never have, you could never be a racist. You could never have racist thoughts. So what does the gospel say? Well, if we just looked at a few verses In Galatians, where we were, just a few more verses, Paul Paul tells us. So I'll just read what Paul says. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through, someone say it, faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of our law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what Paul's saying is this. Here's the gospel. We ourselves, Paul's a Jew, right? We ourselves who are Jews. We were born Jews, and so we're a certain race that believes of ourselves that we are the chosen people of God. How do you think the rest of the world feels about them, <laughs> right? We are the chosen people of God. Our race is pure, chosen, marvelous. <laughs> and Paul says, we know as Jews that we were Jews by birth, that we were birthed into this chosen race we're not those Gentile sinners over there. Paul said it right there. See it? Yet we also know that a person is not justified by works. There's no way we would be able to fulfill the law. But through the faith in Jesus Christ, comma, so we also had to say, yep, I'm a sinner. Yep, I may be the chosen race of God, but I'm a wicked human being. Yep, I need a Savior. So we also placed faith in Jesus Christ. And We believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified. So Paul's saying this, as the chosen race of God, we know there's only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus. It's not what we do, it's what he did on the cross. We put our faith on what he did so that we can be saved. Paul says, it's not of any works of our own, so that no man can boast. So if the Jews got saved that way, guess what? The Gentiles get saved that way too. All the Gentiles have to recognize is that they have sinned. They've offended God, but God's paid for it for them through the death of his son, substituting his life for their life. All they have to do is believe and trust in Christ, and they shall be saved. And do the Gentiles get saved that way? Someone say, yeah, because you're a Gentile. Unless you're a Jew, but I don't see any in the room, at least not obviously. If you're Chinese, do you get saved that way? Yeah. If you're Ethiopian, do you get saved that way? Yeah. If you're African, do you get saved that way? Yeah. If you're Russian, do you get saved that way? Yep. We all get saved the same way. We all get saved by recognizing that we're sinners and we need Jesus. Jesus died for us. Thanks for that. Now I'm saved. I was poor. You made me rich. I was guilty. You made me, you acquitted me <laughs> and gave me righteousness. And if everyone gets to heaven that way, guess what heaven looks like when we get there? Every tongue, every tribe, every nation singing and worshiping God in their own languages and their own cultural expression. Can you imagine it? What we're experiencing today in church is nothing compared to what we will experience in heaven. And I'm not meaning that it's going to be louder up there or that it's going to be more polished up there or that there's going to be better singers and prettier preachers. I, what I mean is our white Christian expression of, of worship is going to pale in comparison to every other color. Have you ever been to a colorful worship service? I'm sure you have. All-black church? First if you have ever been to an all-black church. Good job. When I was in college, it was my go-to church. It was called Pleasant Olives. I was the only white head in that room. And sometimes I'd bring a white head with me just so I wouldn't feel so alone. I had some black friends there, and they just made fun of me. You're so white. I'm like, I know. (laughs) But I loved it. I loved the way the preacher preached. I wished I wanted to be a preacher at that time. I said, "I want to be a preacher like him," and I loved the way the choir kept in step with his sermon. And the Lord said, "Yeah, get the ha. Uh, uh, uh. I said, "Tell me." The Lord said, "Yeah." Oh, man, I don't think I could be a, an African American preacher. Gonna have a heart attack, Elizabeth. I loved it. I loved it. Church would be four hours long, but I still loved it. When I was a kid, eight years old, got baptized in the free will Baptist church in Texas. I told you this once before. Our worship pastor was a Mexican family, about 10 people in this family, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, about eight kids. My math is wrong. Six kids. And oh, so good. We we went to that church for the worship. I don't remember the preacher. I don't remember anything he ever said, but I remember this song. (laughs) I saw the light, I saw the light. They were stomping their feet, shaking their tambourines, doing little dances. (laughs) Me and my white family just sitting there saying, "Mm mm-hmm, it's good stuff. (laughs) I've been to Kenya twice. So I've had lots of different experiences and different kinds of denominations in Kenya. And one thing is always the same. Services are about four hours long. There is no air conditioner. And 500 people are squeezed into a building that fits 100. And I'm complaining that there's sweat running down the back of my leg, which has never happened before. I don't remember. I don't remember feeling sweat running down the back of my leg. I don't understand a word this guy's saying because it's in Swahili. But these people love Jesus a lot, apparently. Four hours in a sweaty hot box, you know. And can you imagine in Swahili what the worship music sounded like? Hey, I don't even know. A body, a You know, it was good stuff. Oh, it was good. So here's how Paul wraps it up. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Amen? There's no race. There's no slave or free. There's no class. There's no male or female. There's no sexism, which is another injustice we probably should talk about. For you are all one. One in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Amen? Someone say amen. That's the gospel. So why did Peter do what he did if he understood the gospel? Right? Peter knew Jesus. (laughs) Why did Peter get it wrong? Well, well, let me me say this real quick. If you understand the gospel, do you believe that it should change you to love people who are unlovable? Someone say, yeah. Okay. (laughs) If you believe the gospel, do you believe that it would change you to allow you to, wait for it, love your enemies and pray for them? Jesus said that, right? So here's what I want to say to you. If you get the gospel, it humbles you knowing that you're a sinner and that you're in need of a savior, and so is your neighbor. It will humble you and give you the power to love and to serve your homosexual neighbor and your Muslim neighbor. You might not agree with their lifestyle, and I hope you don't. But that's irrelevant if you agree with their lifestyle. God doesn't say agree with their lifestyle. God says love them and serve them. Now, I know that what I said was really scary, and I said my purpose to scare you. And for some of you, it was horrifying. But that's what I believe Jesus would say that. Love the Samaritan, he said to the Jew. <laughs> what are you talking about? Love the prostitute and the tax collector. What are you talking about? But that's scary. And that was what Peter's problem was. Galatians chapter 2 says this. Before certain, if I can go back to this verse. Certain men came from James. Before that, Peter was eaten with the Gentiles he was friends with them but when they came in he drew back separating himself fearing a circumcision party so my 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 rationale my, rational, my rationale here is that fear i think is the thing that gets in our way of loving people of different race different ethnicity different lifestyles fear peter feared but look here's what's interesting peter didn't fear the gentiles right he was friends with them he ate with them who did he fear he feared his own people, which I also think is a big, would you agree? It's a big part of it. So maybe, I don't know. Here's a couple of reasons why Peter might have been afraid. Maybe he was afraid of conflict. Look, these people are coming in. They're going to see me hanging out with these people who are sinners. And I just want to avoid conflict, so I'll step back, and that way they won't get mad at me. I, want to, I like to avoid conflict. And I also don't want conflict between the two parties. Let's just, let's just let's come over here until they're gone, and then I'll go back, which is called hypocrisy, right? I call it high school. <laughs> Do you remember those days? But you're my friend. Yesterday I'm a friend. Today you're not. Tomorrow you will be again. Just depends on who else is in the room, right? Maybe he's afraid of his reputation. I don't want them to think certain things of me. Maybe they think because I'm hanging out with sinners that I'm a sinner. They probably think I'm eating bacon. And I am. <laughs> or maybe he's afraid of being associated with a certain class of persons. You know, I think this is a big one. If 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 they see me hanging out with them, loving on them, caring for them, I might get associated with their lives. They might start thinking I'm a homosexual. They might start thinking I'm a Islamic person. They might start thinking I'm a part of ISIL. They they might think I'm a liberal. That's always been my honestly, that's always been my fear. I don't want them to think I'm a liberal. Or probably the biggest one is cost. Let's just be honest, it's gonna cost you something. To love people of a different race, of different ethnicity, a different lifestyle. You don't want to love them. Please bear in mind, I am not saying agree with them. I am not saying vote for their way of thinking. I am not saying be like them. I am saying love them because they're your enemies. What would it cost you to love an ethnic background that's different than what could cost you your life? Look, here's these Syrian refugees. They just came in. They moved in next door in an apartment complex down the way. They're the only Syrian refugees I know of. I'm going to love on them. I'm going to invite them into my home. I'm going to cook them spaghetti now i got to figure out, am I to let my kids play with their kids? I have to if I love them, right? Okay, go play with them. Don't get killed. You know what I mean? I might get killed. Right? We might wake up one day and find our next cut because we loved on the enemy. <laughs> okay, so let me wrap up with another sermon. Another sermon that I liked from Martin Luther King was, it was called, But If. But if not, that's what he said. His sermon was about The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, said, if you don't worship the golden image of me, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not bow down. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And he said, we will not bow down. And he says, okay, I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. And he says, we know that God can save us. But if not, we still will not bow down. We will worship the Lord our God. And you know the story Jesus came in to the furnace, saved the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they lived happily ever after. So so Luther goes on to say, what kind of faith do you have? Is it a but-if faith? Or is it a but-if not kind of a faith? A lot of people, even in the Bible, have a but-if faith. Jacob, if you bless me, I will go, right? Gideon, if you prove to me that you are with me, I will go. There's a lot of people in the Bible who have a but-if faith. But-if not faith is... Whether you bless me, whether you prove anything to me, I know the right thing to do. I trust you, and I will go this way and I will do what's right. And if you do not save me, but if not from the hands of my enemy, I'm still gonna do what's right. Do you have a but-if faith, or but if not faith? I think a lot of us have a but-if faith. Would you agree? Lord, I will serve you if you protect my country. I will serve you if you protect my home and, and my daddy. your daddy. I, I, <laughs> Thank you. I will will serve you and love you and do all that you say if you give me health and and wealth. The Bible never says that God will do that, right? The Bible never says, I will always protect you. I will always give you happiness and wealth and health. That's a different kind of a gospel, by the way, a gospel that I abhor, abhor, the prosperity gospel. God doesn't promise you wealth. By the way, he promises you the opposite. If they hated me, they'll kill you, he said. You will have trouble in this world. But take heart. I'm going to get rid of all your trouble and you're going to live happily ever after. Is that what the Bible says? No? No. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And if I have overcome the world, you will overcome the world. Jesus doesn't promise us a long life. So our attitude should be, I'm going to love these people and God's going to protect me because I'm honoring him and doing such. But if not, I'm still going to do it because that's what I'm called to do. Amen? We have a lot to do. Let me just end with Jesus. Don't you think I should do that? Um, Jesus is no stranger to injustice. Would you say amen to that? No stranger to injustice. I mean, just, just take his trial, for instance. It has often been remarked that his trial was completely unjust. It happened at night. They robbed him at night from a garden, brought him into a a, a, a kind of a semi-trial in someone's backyard. I feel like, and and they tried him without, without any public notice. You're supposed to publicly notice. There's a trial. There's a court date coming up. Anyone who has evidence needs to come and bring it. You're supposed to do that two weeks in advance. Um, that was the rules of the day. They didn't post anything. No billings. They just kidnapped him and brought him at night and they tried him. He had no lawyer. You know, you have a right to remain silent, right? Anything you can say be held against you, you have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, we'll appoint you one. How do I know that? Because I watch a lot of movies. Um, He didn't get an attorney. He didn't get a lawyer. He didn't have anyone to speak for him. In fact, he was kind of made to speak for himself. And then when he spoke for himself, the judge punched him in the face. Do you remember that? The judge asked him a question. He responded, boom, punched him in the face. Is that just trial? No. In fact, the only thing they did that was legal was they realized they couldn't kill him. So they took him to pilot. I want you to kill him. And Pilate said, there's no, this guy's innocent. You guys are lynching him and bring him here for me to kill him. I'm not going to kill him. And they said, they use politics. this is why this issue is such a big issue, because politics just gets right in it, right? How do you separate your politic, your country from your God and your religion? I don't know. I'm wrestling with that myself. They use politics to tell Pilate, if you don't kill him, then we're going to rebel and you're going to lose your office. Pilate said, okay, I'll kill him. That easy. I wash my hands on the matter. I rationalize and pretend that didn't happen. Boy, is he going to regret that because now his name's in the Apostle Creed. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Poor guy gets his name in the Apostle's Creed. <laughs> Suffered under Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> Jesus was no stranger to injustice. In fact, They killed him, they beat him, they publicly exposed him, they bartered for the only thing he owned, which was his clothes, left him there shamefully naked on the cross, killed him, and then buried him in a a borrowed man's tomb. It doesn't get more unjust than that. But here's the key. God, in the cross, shows us to what extent he will go to unite himself, to align himself, to adapt himself to the lowest of low, to the most unjust marginalized, oppressed people on the planet. Doesn't he? Jesus says, look, I've been as high as you can get, and I've been as low as you can get. And because I died on the cross that way, I was able to, though I was innocent, though I should have been acquitted, I died and suffered a a consequence that was not mine to suffer, so that you, though you should be guilty, (laughs) and though you should not have freedom, I'm giving it to you because I took it for you. That's the gospel, and it's good. Amen.